and welcome to Essential Nola Cinema, a conversation between cinephiles about the past and future of New Orleans movies. My name's Randy Mack, and I'm pleased as punch to have Mr. Jonathan Wood here. Uh, John is a veteran independent producer, and John has uh, produced a... John has produced a... <laughs> Boy, yeah, I went the coffee was not kicked in. John has produced a significant and impressive number of independent local features and shorts, as well as being a veteran Hollywood South AD department crew member. He uh, comes to us today with the big short, uh, Adam McKay's 2015 Oscar-winning... Is it a comedy? The genre of the big short is a real interesting bugaboo to pick at. It's, it's, uh, it's a comedy take on one of the most serious events that happen in modern American history, and it's also Oscar bait, and it's also super entertaining and breezy, full of movie stars and quips and uh, super cheeky camera style. It's certainly one of my favorite films of that year. And John actually worked on it. You were the, the key background PA? Is that the title? On sets, there'll be a handful of PAs, like if you've ever seen the credits. The turkeys you see that say production assistants are usually a mixture of office people or set people. Um, the only key is there's a key set PA. On this one, I was just the background PA. It was the first staff job I ever had. Oh, cool. So you were working for the second second, arranging and coordinating background actors, getting them to sets, getting them off the sets, that kind of thing, presenting them for approval. So basically, there's a second second, and they're in charge of placing actions, shit like that. The first AD kind of has the final say. The director obviously does, but usually background, unless it's a heavy background scene, just gets left to the first. So what my job is to show up way too goddamn early in the morning with the second AD, sign in shitloads of people, get them dressed, get them taken care of, and then, yeah, get them to set wherever that might be for the day. And once you're on set, then you help set them, help tell them what to do, um, get everything lined up. And then once that's all lined up and you've done a take, get them all the hell out of there, go hide and holding and sit around for another hour until they're ready to take the next take. Then replace everything and do all the continuity parts, keep track of all that shit. So whenever you see all the people in the background of a movie, it's usually two or three people that are actually doing that along with like costumers and makeup people, that kind of crap. But all the background action is usually a handful of people, not, you know, tons of people or a director. The director has nothing to do with that shit. You're the first guest on this show that has ever directly worked for the film they've chosen. So that's this exciting new territory for me. The Big Short is, is interesting in the, in the context of the show. We've done eight episodes in the can at the point of this recording. And this is the only... One of two where New Orleans does not play itself on screen. I, I think in terms of hiding its actual location of its shoot, it's probably the best job I've seen. I can recognize New Orleans pretty quickly in, in a Hollywood South production, no matter where it's set or when it's set. But this was a film where if there hadn't been a half dozen friends and <laughs> colleagues of mine actually working on the film, I would never have guessed it was shot here. So the reason I mentioned all that is because I'm curious as to how you got the gig coming in as your, your first time in that capacity. And do you remember where the extras were staged and then where, where the locations were that you had to bring them to? I remember far too well. I, I, there is nothing you can ask that I will not remember. That, that show has lodged itself in my brain. 
It's funny what you had just said before that. The main reason I wanted to touch on this movie uh, out of the list that we saw was because it's one of the few that I've worked on that if I ever bring up, people didn't realize was shot here. They all assumed it was New York because there was, they did do four days in New York for the stuff that you can't, like the Central Park shot or the one where he's walking through Times Square on the phone. Like those, they had to shoot up there. There's like a scene in, that's supposed to be in Caesar's Palace where the exteriors are obviously Caesar's Palace, but it was at Chateau Country Club and they just redressed it as, as Caesar's Palace. So there's shit like that where it's it really did hide itself. To me, it's one of the more influential movies that have come out of here because it was the first non, technically it was a period piece because it was 2008, but it was the first like non-historical thing like 12 Years a Slave obviously won right before it. But Big Shore was a completely New York movie. It was about Wall Street, so it's kind of more modern day. It actually hit on a lot of topics that was really interesting and shows that New Orleans doesn't have to be a, you know, some old-timey shit. It doesn't have to be Green Book where it's in Hammond to make it 1960s. It doesn't have to be something from the 1800s. It doesn't have to be interviewed with a vampire, JFK, or anything. Um, it can be modern. It can be wherever the hell you want it to be. So that actually, I think, is a huge part of the actual New Orleans movie-making process is the ability to use it as multiple different places. The Big Short also isn't just in New York. It's Miami at one point in time. It's Las Vegas for a while, and it actually matches all those spots. Also, because it was the first staff job I did, it still remains the, by far, most difficult shoot I have ever done by far and that is uh only because of one person who I will not name on here everyone on that show for the most part was a total peach but it it was an absolute nightmare 90% of the time well so answering your question uh, about how I got it uh, I don't know if anybody knows this but you don't get a job in this industry because of any qualifications you get a, a text message and that's how you get a job um, actors have to audition that kind of shit I, I had to interview but the way I got it was I had worked with a good friend of mine her name is Kelly Pomez Kelly is now a second ED on young Sheldon out in LA she was the second second on the show and I went to UNO. I had no clue how to do anything as far as getting a job. This one though was the first staff gig I did. Terminator I did 39 of 42 days but it was not staff. This one I did and it was uh, usually staff wise on uh, production assistance. You'll have the key set PA who was kind of like the second second. He's like an underling, he's in charge of the PAs. Usually it is someone in the DGA. There's a couple of key sets that are not. There's usually a base camp PA who deals with everyone back at base, with the actors, getting them ready, all that shit. There's usually a walkie PA. Sorry for the dogs. <laughs> it's okay, I got, Hang on I got two second. dogs of my own here, but they're, they're old and small and sleeping right now. Uh, this guy's older, but he is not small, and he's just the lightning and thunder. Okay, so there's also a walkie PA uh, who's in charge of the walkies for the production. That's their whole job. Uh, obviously, you know, you can you have them do other things, but... And then in most shows, the fourth one would be background. I don't even know if that position going forward will ever exist, <laughs> at least in the foreseeable future, because background's not going to be a thing, more than likely. Yeah, it's weird to think that background and... And extras are going to be a line item in post-production in the future. So it's, our job is to just one, you know, handle back. Of all the speculating and prognosticating I've heard about the future of the film business, the one thing everyone seems to agree on is that the days of extras are over. 
at least in the short term. Yeah, uh, I think for the next year or so. I know whenever we go back to work on the show that I'm on now, we had seven days left, and uh, it's a vampire movie, and there's a scene in a mansion with vampires. Mm. And I am curious to see the rewrites of it to see how a scene with 20 vampires will probably be two, and they might even be people. So it's definitely going to change things, but... I do think once it gets back to normal and things are more cohesive and people understand what they're doing, I do like the one of the ideas of just using crew members as background because that's actually an Adam McKay thing uh, that he did a lot. Was uh, There's a lot of crew members in that movie, and just watching it again, I actually noticed how many there were. That's funny, yeah, that's because that's a low-budget go-to move. I think almost literally every single crew member of Laundry Day is in Laundry Day at some point. Some of them multiple times. <laughs> and, it, and it's funny because it is a low-budget thing. And there's a lot of things that are happening now that it seems like indie folks are much more prepared for than the people who haven't done an indie show in a long time. So, I mean, we're, we're supposed to get back in the next month. I am very curious as to the differences and how they're doing it. Not just the precautions, but just the way that things are handled. Because, I mean, it's only supposed to be a handful of crew members and shit. I mean weird it's going to be weird but not to be that guy who you don't need 200 people to make a fucking movie in all honesty so yeah that list of pa positions it made me wonder about do you know offhand what the budget of the big short was i know what the budget originally was which was 50 million i know what the final budget was which was 28 million and that goes (laughs) back to that person that made that show very unpleasant um, to get way back to the first question you asked about how I got the job, literally I got a text from Callie asking if I wanted to do it. I said, you know, I've never done a staff, I've never done background, because she had said that's what she was thinking of. And then we interviewed with the first and second. I had a uh, hat tan, so I walked in looking like a complete lunatic, because I had gotten sunburned. <laughs> um, and just played it off, and they apparently found that quite amusing. So, Do you have a photograph of yourself with that hat tan we can post on social media? Um, I, I haven't one day in the sun, um, on a show and immediately I get a hat tan and I just have to keep wearing it to cover it and it just becomes a whole catch 22 of, do I walk outside today looking like an idiot or do I just keep the hat on? So, um, but they actually like the fact that I brought it up like, Hey, sorry, I look like an idiot right now because of that. So the first AD was a guy named Matt Revenkoff. The second AD was a woman named Amy Lauritsen. Uh, Amy is royalty in the DGA at this point. She's won like... I think four straight DGA awards on different shows. Oh, that's that's awesome. Yeah, she's a beast. She's absolutely fantastic. Matt is a very good dude. Does uh, being a second, second, or uh, I mean a background PA count towards membership in the DGA? Yes. Yes. Cool. Uh, so the way the DGA works, just in case anybody doesn't know, it's not like other unions where you get like 30 days, uh, I, I know a lot of IATSE members, I think it's like 30 to 60 now, some are maybe 100. The DGA has requirements, uh, you either have to have 200 days as first AD, 200 first AD days to get in via the AD route. There is another route where you have DGA trainees, uh, where you can kind of go be a trainee if someone puts you up for it and you uh, can then train and they'll take you that way and you start out as a second AD. And then the other option, which is what we do, is 600 days uh, as a PA. So every day, even if you're an additional, uh, counts towards your days, and you just have to have 600. And then you submit a gigantic box full of binders of your call sheets and PRs and check stubs and all, and 
if they accept it, then you can get in as a second uh, second AD, but second second, yada, yada, yada. Right, interesting. Just considering the nomenclature of the AD department, I'm surprised they didn't call your job title the second, second, second. <laughs> that would be against <laughs> union rules. That's There's a massive jump in pay scale. There's a massive prestige thing attached to like being an AD because they know you're putting your time. So. Oh, I see. So... So that's the, the delineation line is between second, second and the, the positions under it? In Europe, it's there's a third AD, there's a fourth AD. In oh. um, America, there's the first, second, 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 and then you'll get an additional second. Um, so a lot of times if it's bigger background days or bigger days with cast, you'll have an additional second AD who will usually either be one of the PAs bumping up or uh, another friend of ours coming in for a day or two. On the purge one day, I think we had five additional seconds because there was like 500 background or something. The line is ADs and then PAs, and then it's like never the twain shall meet until you get your days. Gotcha. <laughs> or you do an indie show. As a PA, you do an indie show as a fucking AD because most people don't know what ADs do, so it's always handy. No, exactly. It's one of the job titles that is the least descriptive. <laughs> Because there's a director's assistant, but there's also assistant directors that are, are totally different. Yeah. So that that budget that it, so it started at 15, went down to 28. So 28 seems a lot more reasonable to me, just given that it's a lot of people in in glass offices yelling at each other. Although you do have a huge above the line because of the quantity and quality of those movie stars: Steve Carell, Ryan Gosling, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Totally. And even the supporting cast. There's a lot of Going back to it, I was like, oh, a lot of these people have really popped in the last few years, especially Rafe Spall, who I keep hearing about, Jeremy Strong. Is that Mark Strong's brother? Oh, I have no clue, but wouldn't be surprised. He's much, much, much shorter if he is. But yeah, all <laughs> the cats in Steve Carell's little posse, like Hamish is as one of the leads in Legion, and he's fucking amazing. And yeah, Rafe blew up, uh, Jeremy blew up. Karen Gillan is a random throwaway character in that. And she's massive now. Uh, fuck, uh, John Magaro and Finn Wittrock. Uh, Finn actually started to get up there a little bit, and John's done some stuff. So, like, all of the actors who were smaller roles in there actually wound up uh, blowing up. Shit, even Ryan's assistants. I didn't, I didn't realize you were on a first-name basis with the Goster. <laughs> There's lots of stories. That, yeah, he, he was a good dude, man. A lot of a lot of those guys were good dudes. Oh, nice. I mean, fuck, Melissa Leo plays, what, 30 seconds on screen or whatever? I, I know, I know. It was so funny. Yeah, I was, I was sort of had a double-take moment with that. Yeah. That was also one of the weird things about that show. That was the first one where it was just overload on celebrities because, I mean... Angelina would show up a day, and then you'd have Will Ferrell showed up randomly. So as a newbie who had not really been surrounded by that, it was very bizarre just how many people were showing up just to do little day-playing roles and all. And, I mean, it was actually great because we just we did Jay and Silent Bob Reboot last year, and like that was another one where we, we didn't really have any local actors with maybe the exception of like five. Everything else was A-listers, and it was just really bizarre. Um, but Big Short was kind of like that, because every day would just be somebody new. It was an interesting experience for a, a first staff gig. I mean, yeah. the main reason I took it, actually, was because someone I was dating at the time was a huge Christian Bale fan. And whenever I looked, I was like, what the hell is this Big Short movie? And saw who the actors were. I was like, holy shit, that's, that's, it's Christian Bale. I, I guess I'll take this. I remember hearing about the production coming to town through one of the actors in it, who was also in, in my film Laundry Day. 
And when he, he told me, like, oh, yeah, there's this new movie. It's really big. He rattled off the list of movie stars. And he said they're casting locally. I got this small role and, and so on. And I thought, this is maybe the worst title I've ever heard. <laughs> the big short sounds like almost like a sequel to Get Shorty or something, you know? I'm just picturing Danny DeVito, like, wandering around bossing people around and falling over furniture or something. <laughs> and because it's Adam McKay and he's bringing in Steve Carell, you're sort of like, what is this movie? Like, it's very random. And, of course, they were using so many different locations and pretending to be in so many different places and then when somebody said, oh, it's about the financial collapse, then every, you just see everyone's eyes instantly glaze over. <laughs> and so it was really hard to get a beat on what this film was. It was. There was nobody could really bring a strong take about it while it was being made. Everything generally has a clear-cut persona as to the type of production it is. And The Big Short was a real enigma. So it's weird because obviously it's that title because of the Michael Lewis book. I had no clue what what it was i mean literally whenever she texted the big short i thought it literally was like a big budget short i had no clue and then just again looking it up like what the hell is this a thing um and it had the cast i was like holy shit this is a thing and then realized what the book was and that was the main thing was just background wise uh we'd have a lot of people that would come in they were just interested to do it because they had read the book or they used to be bankers, that whole thing. And that was actually a very good show as far as casting, even with the like background casting. It was Cavalera, who's fucking amazing. Those cats would say, like, oh, yeah, I read the book. And it was just like, oh, for fuck's sake, another person that read the book. And so they <laughs> think they know what's going on. They would start talking. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm too stupid. I'm glad you like the book. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm an idiot. It's an incredibly formidable piece of material. <laughs> I've seen this movie. I saw it in the theater twice. I've, I own it on Blu-ray. I've watched that Blu-ray at least a half a dozen times and again last night. And then I went after talking to you and read the screenplay that I got during the Oscar season of that year which is the May 11th, 2015 Buff Revised Draft. It's 171 pages long. Because of the revisions, it actually only adds up to about 128 pages of, of script. Hmm. Reading it made the film less comprehensible to me, somehow. Like, uh, sitting on the page, all of those dense monologues and stuff about... Reading about the tranches on the page as opposed to hearing them and, and, and being shown to, like, Jenga Puzzle and all that stuff... I always held this film in extremely high regard for its degree of difficulty and with what it pulled off and how well it pulled it off is really astounding to me. And I thought it deserved a lot more than the best screenplay Oscar. But now that I've actually sat and read the screenplay, it's very easy to imagine the confusion on set regarding what exactly the film's about and what the tone of it is. So that's interesting because I actually understood more on the page than I did with the final product because the final product is cut to shit has like random music videos thrown in like it's it's something different it's natural born killers for the financial market exactly um, and that's Same legitimate editor. because yep. that's who cut it was the guy who cut natural born killers he was not supposed to do it originally it was supposed to be Adam's guy who did Step Brothers and uh, Anchorman and I will tell you the first time I saw it I literally was like what the fuck did they do because the original script, we actually shot all this too, has a whole introduction to him. We, we shot a scene at Landry's one day. It was actually a really cool scene where he's basically at a party and he's awkward as shit. And since he doesn't say anything, he just sits there drinking and everyone else is like talking about financial shit or whatever. And he's just like rolling his eyes. It, it leads into why he actually looks in, in the beginning for the mortgage thing. 
because um, he kind of overhears all this stuff at a party. That obviously got cut. He finds out that his son has Asperger's, and he has a conversation with his a doctor friend of his on a roof, and realizes that the reason he is the way he is because he doesn't look at like the fact that people are saying no this can't happen no, this can't happen it just doesn't register to him and that's why he actually decides to lock out the funds so that nobody can get their money back there's a lot of scenes like that that actually make much more just story and structural continuity makes a lot more sense yeah no i, I just caught that too when i was reading the script i was realizing there's oh there's a there's a whole arc to his character that's kind of just gone from the movie yeah he makes all these these bold choices and then starts to doubt himself as he's taking all the stress home and he's hemorrhaging employees and money and so forth. He has this realization right. through his son when his son starts getting reports back from school that he's behaving weirdly. And when they finally diagnose him with Asperger's and, the, and then he starts reading up and there's a whole almost parallel montage to him reading the mortgages where he's reading the diagnostics on Asperger's and so forth and, and sees that it's carried through the father's genes. Right. He realizes that, oh, it's this This explains the, why I'm so different and why everyone's reacting so weird to me in my whole life. And empowered by that or, or sort of at peace with himself, it removes some of his doubt around the, the short he took out. And then, therefore, he goes and kind of lays down the law with his uh, clients. And, it, and in the movie, that scene with him just laying down the law is treated as mo mostly a re result of a moment of, of high stress, where instead of feeling like, okay, he's in control of the ship again, in the movie it feels like, oh my god, he's now stuck his neck out yet another, you know, he's gone even further out on the branch that might snap off and drop him. Yeah. It's really different. That was the main thing they cut. There's some other stuff that was cut out, obviously for time, but also just because the way they did it. And then also... Uh, for actors, because the like the Margot Robbie in a bath scene, I'm not sure if it's in your Scarlett Johansson version or not, but originally right? yes, yeah, waterfall, yeah, and um, Jay Z and Beyonce instead of the clown fucking professor and Selena Gomez, fucking awful day that was. But that was originally Jay Z and Beyonce, and then Michael Lewis let that slip on a fucking interview, and so they backed out. So there's like a bunch of things that got changed because of just actor availability because a lot of people did it at rate like you know sure, scale all of those guys did it based upon back-end deals and, and royalties and shit so again 28 million compared to 50 but that again was also because they just we had three vans bringing people around and couldn't get a fucking van to bring it was it was a mess but that's another story was that in was that in harris yeah yeah um there's a couple of scenes in harris which was a beast to pull off. I am shocked a lot of times going back that we did that. It was still functioning. Like there was people 10 feet away gambling. Um, <laughs> there were people on the machines that you'd had to ask, uh, you know, hey, can you step away for five minutes while we get this shot? And it's, and it's Brad, Finn, and John McGarrow walking. And it's this long, mm -hmm. like, little one-er. Yeah, the Vegas thing, yeah. Yeah, and there was people who wouldn't get off the machines, understandably. So we'd just be like, can you sign? And that's one of my jobs is to get... Uh, in, uh, Clearances, right? The likeness release? Yeah. yeah. And go run up to them and be like, do you mind signing this then? And so you're trying to get somebody who's like got a hot streak to sign off their likeness rights or whatever and not even paying attention. <laughs> so it was just, it was weird because it was one of those things. And then it's also like trying to keep those people calm because they're just not paying attention, but then they want to know why Brad Pitt's walking through the middle of their aisle. It was just really bizarre. I'm just picturing an old lady screaming, Brad Pitt is bad luck. Keep him away from my machine. 
a lot of people were pretty good about it. Uh, there's another one that Nobu was actually the old masquerade, and we turned it into a sushi restaurant, and that was another one. I don't know what Nobu is. I've never heard of Nobu. I'd never heard of it at the time <laughs> of this movie, and I still never heard of it outside of this movie's context. The movie seems to treat it like a running joke, but it just completely <laughs> thuds every time it comes up. And they even threw it in the closing like uh, paragraphs yeah. on the screen about what happens to these guys. And I'm just like, Adam McKay must assume everyone on Earth knows what Nobu is, because I've still never heard of it, and it's been five years. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't. Maybe it's just a rich guy thing. I don't know. Yeah, I think I'm just too poor for it because I just I have no clue what it is either. We shot it there, and Steve Carell walks out, and that was another one where, it just seemed like the busiest day in the history of Harris ever, and we had background to fill in, but it was just people walking, and you have to try to lock them up and like keep people from walking in, but they see a bunch of other people walking, and so they're wondering why they. It was just total fucking nightmare. But hey, it pulled off. Reading the script was a real, really interesting to me for a lot of reasons. This was the screenplay hmm. that the studio put on their website with an official cover page for the Oscar campaign. It's got a typo on the first sentence of the first page <laughs> that is like one of the real dumb elemental typos. Like the wrong two in a sentence, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Without a spell check, it would just pass over. But on like page seven, they spell America wrong. <laughs> and I was like, all right, nobody even spell checked this. And as you read through, there's a fascinating sloppiness to the way it's presented that as a writer just sort of like irked me a little bit, even as I was impressed with what they were pulling off. And then when you get to the uh, Selena Gomez scene, the, the voiceover that introduces it has this terrible construction that says, here is Richard Thaler, the father of behavioral economics and pop star Selena Gomez, making it him sound like it's Selena Gomez's dad. Yeah. So I caught that in the theater thinking, okay, wait, Selena Gomez's dad is, is a behavioral economics professor? Like, wait a minute, is that, I mean, it's not impossible. It could, that'd be really cool if it was true. But then I thought they'd make a bit about it or that she would call him dad at some point or there'd be like a thing. And then when I finally got to see it on the page, I was like, oh no, this is just really poorly constructed. You know, it's, it's just ambiguous. Like, yeah. Why call him the f father of behavioral economics? Why not call him a PhD or the, you know, <laughs> or the author of whatever, or, or put her name first. That's all. That's probably all they got Gosling to record and he just couldn't re-record it or something. A lot of that stuff was in post because he didn't know who it was going to be. And, and so, yeah, we recorded that in the New Orleans airport, like all of his, his voiceover shit. In the airport? Yeah. Why, why in the airport? Uh, running out of time, uh, just literally running out of days where he could record it, and we had some time, and so he just went to an office in the airport and recorded Whoa. pages and pages of voiceover, and just in, in someone's random office. As he was, like, flying out of town, basically? He was the one that was there to the bitter end, um, because the last day is the scenes of Louis Ranieri and the, uh, 70s, that was the last day we shot. Oh, that's right, the prologue. Yeah. Yeah, you have a cameo in there. That's, yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, he, well, and that was the whole thing was that I'm actually sitting across from him the whole time. And uh, we were doing some just background shit, just picking off shots and doing this whole, another thing that was cut out was there's this whole, uh, anyway, I won't get into it, but it's filthy. And it's uh, right behind me. And the whole deal is that we would like react to it. And apparently he thought it was hysterical because I was chain smoking. I didn't have my glasses on. I had uh, these big fake 70s glasses. And apparently he was trying to talk to me and tell me, like, dude, you do it, you're killing it. And I couldn't see him, cause even though he was, like, two feet from me. <laughs> and I was just completely ignoring him. He actually asked later on, I was like, hey, is John mad or something? Did I do something? And I was just like, 
I had no clue you were talking to me, dude. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> fucking, I'm blind. I apologize. So you're like the lady at Standard & Poor's later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. I, I, I couldn't see shit. It was just, it was, that was also a weird day, though, because it should have only been six hours and we had lightning delays, whatever. So, um. Casey Groves is in that scene, too. Correct. Like, it was great seeing so many local actors, uh. We call all the friends of Laundry Day who were, like, not in the film but have helped us since the film was shot and, and released and everything. Friends of Laundry Day, or Fold for short. So they're in the fold, so to speak. So we had a, a number of uh, folds in there, including hmm. Kelly Lind and uh, Wayne Perret from King of Herrings, which is our third episode of this podcast. And, of course, there's uh, Billy Slaughter and Dave Davis, who are the stars of Laundry Day, also in the film, doing their best to steal scenes and so forth. <laughs> Dave plays one of uh, Michael Berry's assistants. I have a feeling because of, as the movie progresses, he's the last assistant standing, and then he's gone. Oh, Hunter Burke, shout out to Hunter Burke, who plays the higher E at the beginning. Yeah. But uh, Dave's character is the same character he plays in Logan a few years later when he's working in a convenience store. Same character, but now he's out of a job, so he's working at the, the you know, <laughs> thrift the mat or whatever. That's my uh, shared universe theory on the Big Short and Logan. <laughs> Never realized that. That's actually a good suggestion. I think it's the same haircut. That's what I'm gonna have to have Dave on the show, and he can explain. Um, because I, actually, now that I think about it, L Logan takes place like 50 years in the future, doesn't? <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> like, yeah, you know. he just apparently he doesn't age. He's a mutant or something. There you go. There you go. He's, he's a, one of those mutants in hiding. Going through the script, the other thing I, I thought was really... I mean, talk about your, your degree of difficulty as a screenwriting endeavor. You're adapting this really dense book about incredibly dry, economic, Wall Street stuff full of jargon. Like, shifting jargon and jargon that's almost the same thing, but not. And it just makes your eyes glaze over. But all the character names begin with B, which I thought was, like, incredibly, like, weird. And they didn't change any of them, which I thought was very cool. Because I guess with, when you have movie stars... It doesn't matter that you're dealing with uh, Burry, Baum, and Brownfield, and Ben as your four main characters. <laughs> That's one of those like screenwriting no-nos. Um, so let, let's step back a second and, and talk about how you as a New Orleans filmmaker, you've produced A Quiet Storm with director Jason Affolder, which got a new name, right, on its release? It's called Ninth Ward? <laughs> Is that right? Or something like that? There's actually two names. There's one which is the full version still of Quiet Storm, which is called The Reward. And then there is the version that you can find on every streaming platform called Ninth Ward Justice, which we had no input in to whatsoever. They just, that there's like, this is the name. So, yeah, it, it yeah. And then it sounds like they edited it? They cut it down? They did. They cut 10 minutes off. Um, most of it is transitions. The main character playing piano, they cut all the piano playing out um, to a bizarre degree because now there's like, you'd start hearing a piano playing in the middle of a scene and they would just cut to the next thing. Like, it's just, it's it's sloppily cut. Yeah, the people who edit movies after the fact without the filmmaker's permission tend not to be very good at it. <laughs> We've been fighting over it for a while, but we, we knew that... We didn't know. I shouldn't say that. We had some offers where we wouldn't have had to, but they didn't take them. It's part of having a sales agent is you don't have autonomy over who you select. Um, and so they went with a different one than, than we would have. Yeah, they changed the name. They cut it down, yada, yada, yada. So unfortunate, but... So, I, it's. I mean, I love that film, and I, it's on my list of 
New Orleans movies for guests. Um, it's a it's a really genuinely great movie. It's I was so impressed. It's just not only just solid storytelling, but it's it uses and it, uh, that limited scope so effectively um, that it doesn't feel small or you know homemade at all. It's it's as good it's as good storytelling, and it's the kind of story that you, you hardly ever see any. I mean, that kind of material it tends to be the purview of documentaries <laughs> for the most part, and nice to see solid writing, directing, and all that stuff. So congratulations on, on A Quiet Storm. You've also produced a number of, of short films. Uh, you've worked with Timecode NOLA. You were instrumental in their film festival. And it seems to me that, like, the role of Hollywood South in terms of its effect on indigenous production has been changing over the years. Um, how long have you been living in New Orleans? I guess we could start there. I'm native here, so yeah. I, so you were here for Katrina yes. and po- post the post Katrina and everything. So when you when you saw the hype about Hollywood South building up, and as it sort of went into the heyday of like 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, what was your feeling about it, and how has it changed since that since peak Hollywood South? Um, I rolled my eyes at it. So after Katrina, a lot of stuff went to the Shreveport. And uh, worked out of there because down here was impossible to. This is where I'm going to start pissing people off. So Novak offered the the thing where they would train you or whatever. They offered it for like, I don't know, a couple of months. And then they started tweaking it so it wouldn't be like PA training or grip training or anything. It would be you can take a class and then we'll use that as their, like to try to help you get stuff. So I went in for something that was supposed to be like editing, like an editing workshop that actually wound up being editing on iMovie instead of fucking Final Cut. And then that was supposed to give me some work and it just didn't. So like the only reason I knew how to do anything was because I went to UNO and even then um, I learned a lot. I I learned enough at UNO to kind of, you know, help indie wise, but um going from indie to major motion pictures is is night and day different and that's the thing is uh i rolled my eyes at the whole hollywood south movement because it we didn't have enough qualified people here it was as simple as that very few of the people who were working were locals i mean very very few they would bring in a lot of people we actually got a really shitty reputation because we had such incompetent boobs working so it was actually really hard to get work it has changed now and unfortunately, that little dip in the market, whenever they screwed with the credits, that actually caused a lot of people to leave. And so uh, what we ran into was around Terminator and big short times like this, it was just packed full of people who were, who were competent, who were great ADs, who were great crew members, and they all fleed to Georgia or to New Mexico or other places. And then whenever everything started trying to come back, there was nowhere near enough people uh, employee-wise. And so then it became the same thing, where then you have like a shitty reputation because there's not enough qualified people here. So, I mean, we have PAs now who are complete bozos, just fucking bozos, that think that they're brilliant because there were... It's, it's, it's one of those... Uh, the pool has been kind of... Um, Drained? Yeah, and, and just... It's it's like the gene pool kind of you know you you start out with strong people training people, and so you have like the generational connection. So like uh, I mentioned, Kelly Pomez training me and training a bunch of others, and a bunch of other ads now that were great trainers and 
then I'm training people and so on and so on. Three or four generations down the line, those people have never worked with the original people who were so fucking solid it wasn't funny. And they haven't even worked with me half the time or the generation below me. They're working with new people. And so we get these kids who come in who think they know everything. And I'm like, dude, I wouldn't hire you if somebody paid me to hire you. Like, it's fucking, it's sad. Yeah. This whole movement has been very bizarre because it does seem to go in waves. And um, right now, the days of Terminator and so on are, are over because it's all mostly like the 10 to $20 million movies and... That's fine, but it, it it does cut down on rates, it does cut down on a lot of things. And so when that whole movement was happening, I just kind of rolled my eyes because I, I didn't recognize a single person anywhere. It was almost impossible to get a job. Then once Katrina happened and people started going in Shreveport, it became even harder. But we just had such a shitty reputation that it still was just kind of up in the air. And it's funny because a lot of firsts, like a person I, I absolutely adore, his name is Paul Udo. Paul is a fucking phenomenal human being. He's a first AD locally. He's one of the cats who is born and raised here. And he uh, he was the second AD on Green Book also. But he has kept it going as far as higher quality people. So it's, it's just kind of great because some people still try to make it to what it was because they were here during like the, the big short kind of time. And then other people just kind of fly in, do their gig and get the hell out of here. And the people who are involved in those a lot of times just aren't learning nearly enough. So are... are the the quality has been kind of draining lately and it and it sucks because i'm yeah. you know given what's going on right now fuck only knows what this is going to do to it and same one same one same one yeah when you when you don't have good crew you get fewer productions coming to town which is fewer opportunity to train people that's less easy to, for people to get experience and therefore it becomes a self-fulfilling downward slide as opposed to yeah. a self-fulfilling upward slide which it could be if there was you know, people were serious about it, and we are getting lots of productions coming through. Yeah. Now, Hollywood South has always been a bit of a conundrum for me. Laundry Day was my third feature. My first one was made out of L.A., but was shot in West Virginia. And my second one was shot in New York City. Um, so I've worked on both coasts and now here in the South. And the one thing I that I never really appreciated that you could take for granted in L.A. and New York is the depth of, you know, the, that legacy of apprenticeship that creates people who are really serious about what they do and if not seasoned at it, very serious about learning the craft and so on. And that direct apprenticeship mentorship um, structure is the lifeblood of both of those film communities. And so when I came here, it took me a while to kind of put my finger on it, but then I realized, oh, Hollywood South is basically coming through entirely just for production. There's no pre-pro or development here, and there's very little post and so forth. So oh, you're really only talking one piece of, of the, the larger puzzle. And because the keys, the, the above the liners and department heads are not staying here, they're not teaching back. They're, they're basically throwing people into sets and then hoping they can figure it out. Or at the very least, they're giving some exposure to the apparatus of the Hollywood productions without giving them the, the big picture, like why does it work this way, et cetera, et cetera. And so this podcast is actually based on a blog, and I, I stopped the blog in early 2016 after writing what is essentially an open letter to the to Baton Rouge and to our the New Orleans Film Commission, which is saying basically that, that we need to, as a condition of shooting in New Orleans, what if we put in a requirement that every production gives one hour of teaching back 
to just a you know just speak at a podium and take questions for forty five minutes to an hour, and give people a sense of pre pro development, you know, post production, the whole life cycle of a film, so that people can feel engaged and that there can be an educational component too to to sort of bring the uh, above the line half of the equation kind of up to par with the at the time was a huge, hugely robust crew. Uh, department and in putting together Laundry Day, of course, the the I've said this uh, on a number of occasions that that we had our pick of the litter in terms of crew as long as they could work for super low budget rates. But in terms of producers and above the line and department heads, it was incredibly hard to find anyone with any significant background or experience at all. You know, I mean every every dimension that the film suffers is through the fact that ultimately when you don't have, you know, a proper locations or a proper first AD or whatever, all of those jobs fell back onto me. So I was ended up wearing about a dozen hats at any given moment, which basically meant I was giving one twelfth the attention that any one of those jobs needed because it was impossible to delegate. And over time, the as the production went on, we, we lost a lot of dead weight in terms of just incompetent crew members. And the smaller we got, the actually more effective we got because people started to carry the load more proportionally instead of coming. A lot of the crew members we hired on on that film had had experience on big sets uh, like the big shorts or or whatever. But because those those major Hollywood productions are so hierarchical, they expected independent sets to be equally hierarchical and machine like, and they don't really work that way. They're much more organic. So half the crew. Where I'm dealing with a with a just total inexperience, just like literally they don't even know the, what the words mean on a set. And then the other half are so used to just being told what to do and being part of a mechanized, you know, set of people that they don't have the initiative to identify a problem and go fix it themselves, you know, kind of thing. Which is kind of what you need people to to do on an independent set. And um, over time, we the people who had that who could figure out the mindset and realize, okay, it's my job to anticipate problems. No one else is going to like bring this to me. If I don't want to hit a pothole, I'm going to have to look down the road myself, see the pothole, and avoid it, or fill it in, or whatever. In in, the, in this tortured metaphor, people with the, that kind of intellectual flexibility were the ones who really rose to the top and and survived the, the whole of the production. But it was a uh, it was a really interesting experience to see how both the absence of of film set experience and then too much of the wrong kind both can be a detriment to the kind of independent films that uh, I tend to make. It was it was uh, fascinating, and as I hear stories from you and other veteran crew guys. It's it's really interesting to see that some of those above the line problems I experienced are actually happening below the line as well, especially in terms of the brain drain that you you mentioned, the loss of leadership that happens when the economic tide uh, shifts away from the city. So, sorry, that was a lot to unpack. I'm sure. <laughs> I I could go on for years about this. Um, this is what I'll say about. Can I let me tack a question on at the end of that because I just monologued at you. Sure, 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 sure. So given that I was wearing a producer hat as well for, for Laundry Day, you're a producer, you've, I mean, you're always out putting projects together. When you put on that producer hat to go make independent indigenous feature films, how, how do you solve that, that catch-22? Or I guess, what's your practice as an independent producer? So what I'll say about this, the situation you're talking about with people knowing too much um i i understand and have dealt with it before 
However, most of the people that are doing shows that I do know me from other shows. Um, the Big Short, for example, is where I met the woman who did our um, costuming on Quiet Storm. Her name is Megan Coates or Bijou Coates. Bijou's blowing up right now. She's fantastic. She's absolutely wonderful. I've heard the name. She was, I can't remember her exact title on The Big Short, but she was basically in the office. I would see her occasionally on set. She sent a resume out to Craigslist Posing or something at Quiet Storm, because at that point in time, we didn't know nearly what we were doing as as today. Jason had kind of mentioned that this girl had sent it in, and I was just like, holy shit, I think I know her. So I talked about it, and I used her for that. I used her for Plaquemines. But because she knew who I was, because we directly worked with each other, we had a much better working relationship than, say, someone you get recommended to that's, you know, a production designer or something that you've never worked with. Because then they'll pull that whole, like, you know, this isn't how it's done, that kind of bullshit. Um, the second thing is you run into a lot with people who are gung-ho union, who don't really like non-union shows. They just kind of look down upon everything like this is not how it's done yada 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 i completely understand where they're coming from working on shows but i think there's a little bit lost as to where where a lot of any people came from in that like you know kevin smith started with fucking clerks which was a handful of people just in a convenience store and then you go to james and bob reboot and there's hundreds of people, and he's stoned and still treating it like it's a fucking handful of his friends doing it. <laughs> right. Was that refreshing or maddening? So that, we called that one either the hardest easy film we've ever done or the easiest hard film we've ever done. Because <laughs> that movie was exclusively difficult for just time. Like, it wasn't hard. It was just... Kevin would be four hours late because he was stoned and rewrote the script. <laughs> like it was just that kind of thing. And, and um, it was great. And it was just also frustrating because you would, you would sit around for hours doing nothing. And it was one of those things where you're just like, you know, you're taught like you have to look busy and shit. It's like, I can't look busy right now. Like I, <laughs> what do you want me to do? Like pretend like I'm all, I, there's no fucking background. There's no actors. They're all back at base. Like, I may as well just have a cigarette in the middle of this fucking house right now because there's nothing to do. And, I mean, I remember our first on that show was always losing his mind because he would look outside and, like, the key grip would be smoking a pipe outside and the the AC would have his feet up at the pool. Like, it was just <laughs> it was just one of those things where it's like we can't do anything about it. We'd have days that Wait, we're supposed to have like six... Like a pipe pipe, like Mark Twain? Yeah, you know, just smoking a pipe. Just, just, <laughs> yeah, because why the hell not? There's nothing else to do. I love it. It's like... If you think vaping is for hipsters, then meet the pipe crowd. <laughs> it, it, it's it's fascinating though. Like it, that that was a whole other learning experience on just it was just it was just new. It was that he had cameras following him around, and you you literally lose him in between takes. Just we do a take and cut, and then he would go outside and interview Shannon Elizabeth about her fucking elephants or whatever and we'd be like all right let's roll and we're like well kevin's not here I'm like where's he at and he's fucking shooting an interview oh my god Dude, this is like <laughs> this is what happens when you have a director who's also an influencer on social media correct and, and it was and i mean like again all love to that dude like absolutely wonderful human being not smack talking or anything like that it was just it was bizarre because it was like the exact opposite to where you're going to it was actually kind of weird because it had the same indie issues you're talking about where 
even people on that show were like, this isn't how it's done. What is this? This is like, because you're so used to it being done a certain way that when someone brings that whole like indie spirit back to something, no matter who it is, they'll still complain about it. Did you notice any of that on the big short? Because McKay is famous for calling audibles, alt lines, just shouting shit from behind the camera mid take, you know, <laughs> doing lots of setups, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. That, well, that's one of the things is that you'll have, <laughs> there's a, a, a scene where they're all yelling at Gosling about how he fucked him or whatever, and the end is uh, Jeremy going, uh, you, you fuck boy, whatever, you butt fuck. And I remember whenever he said that, I was next to the sound guy, and he just started crying. And then Adam would laugh and be like, hey, Larry, let's try it with this. And, and that's, yeah, him and Carell especially, he would just yell stuff. Gosling was great at improvising too. McKay had a lot of fun on that, and a lot of people had fun on that. That show, again, it was it was difficult for one reason and one reason only. I, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. This I think this ties into what we're talking about with uh, Above the Line shit like that. If you don't know what you're doing above the line or even below the line, you fuck up entire productions no matter what your responsibility is. If you are a base camp PA and you fuck up actors getting somewhere then you're causing delays and yada yada like you can even a pa can fuck up an entire show if they don't know what they're doing right the domino effect yeah when an above the line person or just a department head is botching something it's a whole other story and so one certain person we had three vans that entire show and you were asking kind of uh earlier before this if i remembered where background holding was uh I remember, yes, uh, it is now a Starbucks. Um, it was right next to the Hotel Intercontinental. We, we used that one. I'm trying to remember if it was 601 or 901 Poitras. We used that a lot. 901 is the uh, La Pavillon Hotel. Okay, so this might have been like 601 then. It yeah, was, it was... I know exactly what you're talking about. It's where there's an Iberia bank and it's across from One Shell Plaza. Yes. So before that became a Starbucks and restaurant and all, it was just an empty fucking spot. And so that was where we had catering a lot. We'd have a food truck parked right there. And then we'd have set a couple of miles away. We had moves almost every day. and We'd have not easy moves. It'd be like from one part of the CBD to another part at 5 p.m. or some shit. And there was a day where we had three move, no, two moves, and the costume designer and costumes wanted to do background changing at the office, which is 400 Poitras. So I'm the only person. I don't have any additionals. I, I get there. I had, I think... Eight people, ten people for the first scene. We check them in, bring them to the office. We walk that way because we don't have enough vans. There's only three. Taking people from background parking and crew parking to the set. It's all over the fucking place. So we walk down to the office. We go up. We change them. Uh, I get a van that you have to wait for because there's only so many you can get. You finally get a van. They take them down to the end of Poitras. So I'm getting calls. My boss is wondering where people are. It gets down there. I don't go with them because I have to go back to Poitras, the other place, to pick up the next group of background and then walk them back to the office to get them changed and then sit with them waiting for the first scene to be done for them to move. And then at one point in time, I was calling background on their phone because they were at background holding 
and telling them to walk down a couple of blocks to go to the office on the fourth floor and get checked in right there and they'll change you and then I'll meet them. Like I had to do it over the phone because we didn't have enough fucking vans. We didn't have enough people because it was just too cheap. And the thing is, if you are withholding the cost of an additional PA, which is 150 fucking dollars. No, our rate was 140.14, so we never hit overtime, so we were fucking $10 an hour employees. <laughs> so I don't know if I should actually say that to tell you the truth, um, what the actual rate was. You're refusing to pay 140 for me to get someone to literally watch your background so they're not walking through the fucking New Orleans streets and getting lost. You only have enough vans that if you have to go do a hotel pickup or something, you're down to two vans. You're all over creation. Like, uh, there's a parking lot on, I think it's Cleveland and Claiborne. That was our base camp most of the time. So you have a van over there that you need to bring actors somewhere. So there's no way to get background anywhere. And so you're just waiting. And they never waited on me, I will say that. So... Um, you don't have the tools you need. Now, here's the thing with that. You take that as an example of where an indie show can go fucking wrong because those people are learning from people who are teaching them the absolute wrong way and all those people are around is on set. They're not around in fucking pre-pro whenever things get planned out. You, like, you don't have any of that kind of know-how and you're translating it and you think that that's how it's supposed to be run on an indie show. So here you are with a fucking $100,000 feature and you think that it's okay to cut corners and like, that's fine, I get it, but you're cutting corners in the wrong places. You're taking the lowest paid fucking people on set. You're taking those people and saying, no, we're not gonna give you any more people to help you out. We're gonna make your job substantially more difficult. It's one of those things where it's like, well, you're teaching people that you should fail because if you fail, then maybe you'll give me an extra fucking person to help me. It's the wrong mentality to instill in people. And so it's a perfect example of the trickle down effect of like, if you're learning from that, you have no idea what to do right now. I call it an education gap, like a film education gap in a way where you, because there's a lack of, you know, leadership and, and, um, and there's no emphasis on apprenticeship and teaching down to the local communities by these Hollywood South productions, you end up with a sort of blind leading the blind effect on indigenous productions. Absolutely. And, and that is from a movie who won an Oscar for Best Screenplay and was nominated for Best Picture, and it's done cockamamie. <laughs> the last two nominees for Best Picture in this city were The Big Short and Green Book, and I was on both of those as staff. And Green Book was one of the few that was cohesive, but our AD department, from the lowest PA to the first AD, are all DGA-eligible people. Nice. Are those people all local or mostly? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And you go, though, to like a lot of shows and you have people who it's their first time because there's just not enough. And, and I mean, and I say not enough. I mean, you'll get people that will show up for one or two days and you're just like, I don't ever hire this person again because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. And it's because they're going on shows where you have people who have, like you say, that education gap teaching them and so they don't know what the fuck they're supposed to be doing because they're not taught correctly and it's just it's a natural occurrence whenever you don't have that successive um education from generation to generation that there's going to be a massive gap on green book again all of the people that were in that department all came up i i worked with 
two of the people that were staff on that on Big Short, um, but we were they were additionals on that. Whereas like everyone else had been around since like like one of the dudes was the base camp PA on Twelve Years a Slave, and then he was like the key set on Green Book, and then bumped up to second second. Like everybody was fucking stacked on that show. Interesting. I, I came up with an expression. I call it square negative one because bad training can be worse than no training. Absolutely. This is something I've seen on every production that there, if you've got someone who comes in with a, a preconceived notion and can't get off it, that intellectual flexibility I was mentioning before, they're just stuck in their ways or they're stuck with a certain dogma or whatever, whether it's because they're too experienced or, or not experienced enough or just were, were trained badly, you have to then not only teach them how to do it right, but you have to untrain them as well. So it's actually extra work. It's actually sometimes, often maybe, even easier to just tank somebody who's completely green and just train them correctly the first time. We actually, on the uh, group of shows that I'm on right now, we wound up doing that and just getting someone who she had just switched over from like news and it was better to take her than get someone because she was like a fresh slate to work with compared to someone who had been completely trained incorrectly that was just in the way and fucking things up. There's a very small pool and as more of those people like bump up to ad's then you get an even smaller pool or i'll go back to big short as an example with it my department wasn't as bad but i will say this though a lot of the department heads on that show hated the local employees like fucking hated us and thought we were all morons did they talk openly about that or was it was it a vibe oh fuck yeah fuck yeah there was, and it wasn't just department heads, like there's a couple of cats, I won't name names, that openly mocked us, openly hated us, and it was just this uneasy feeling. Now, I'm not talking about anybody, again, in like, no above the line people, like I'm not talking about Adam or fucking uh, any of the, like all those people were wonderful, uh, absolute wonderful people above the line. Um, these were just department heads or their underlings that they brought in that just thought like their department were just full of fucking idiots and would fire people and just act like if you're from New Orleans, you were just a, a bubbling buffoon. It, it was a lot of like, not us versus them, but we all kind of, you know, it was one of those things where you would just kind of huddle together and just be like, well, I guess we're not welcome with these people. And it was, it was very awkward. It used to be a lot more like that. I mean, but I also go back to the good old days where as a fucking PA, you didn't know if you were going to get to eat or not daily because if they ran out of food, you just didn't get to eat. Like, it's it's fascinating now to see how a lot of people work on shows. And I'm just like, man, you wouldn't have been able to hack it back in the day. And I, I that's a good thing. I'm not trying to say, like, I miss those days. But, I mean, I really remember some shows just being like, oh, okay, well, I guess they ran out of food. We're not going to get to eat today. Holy crap. Now that's shocking to hear. I mean, you're talking big Hollywood productions? That ran out of food? Jesus. Fuck yeah, absolutely. You would be, because as a PA, the whole thing is you let everyone eat, and then you get the end of the line. And you're non-union, so if they don't have shit, then tough shit. You're, you, don't, you don't matter. Mm. And also, production you use to springboard into other ones. Uh, there's a girl who's working as a graphic designer right now who uh, just started as a PA. Mm. There's a girl that I got to start on Green Book who did Green Book as an additional PA, and in that time, made friends with the camera department. Now she's an AC. 
because the next show that she did, she was a camera PA. It's like a lot of times you bring people in and you put up with it because it'll lead to the next thing. But again, we're also talking about years ago compared to now. That's cool. It sounds like it was a bit more of an apprentice system, but also at the same time a bit more of like trial by fire simultaneously. It's funny because Big Short was 2015. It was in March that we shot it. And it just it's like a different world from that to now because there's a lot of shit then that like i don't know that you could do anymore i think a lot of people would just complain a lot more i mean fucking hell i mean that that's the same thing i I don't want to talk too much because i don't want to yeah no worries no worries i don't want to you know get you on the spot or so, so to speak so you you mentioned in passing that um green book had was a smoother production and I yeah. was wondering if you if that has anything to do with the fact that Big Short was Adam McKay's fourth film, but Peter Farrelly's like fifteenth. Is there something to that, or was it just about the people? Not at all. Directors, I, I will say this, and I'm sure a lot of people will throw their fucking hands up. And this actually goes back to what you'd asked before that never really answered, as far as like local stuff, as far as saying people above the line. Here's the deal: above the line people ruin everything or make things acceptable directors have the utmost minimal input into fucking anything when it comes to like the way sets are run they're focused on the actors and that shit and you know the way it looks and that kind of crap them and the dp do their thing as far as production goes i i think that locally there are so many incompetent above the line people that like you said before, need to be retrained to a degree. And I say this not trying to be negative, but I don't know how many people locally have actually delivered anything as far as like the delivery that you have to send in paperwork-wise and document-wise whenever you're delivering shit. I, I just did a show called Cleo Speaks, and like it's like clockwork now whenever you're delivering in post how to do stuff. Whereas the first time I was doing it, I was like, whoa, I'm looking at all the stuff we have to deliver, and it's intimidating. Uh, Same thing as delivering a show for distribution. I was going to ask, when you say delivery can mean from production to post, or can mean from, you know, um, the final post-production to distributor. Post and distributor is what I'm talking about in this one. For example, with, with this one, you'll have, like, the legal binder, the production binder, and then, like, the the main hard drive that you have to deliver to the network. And the list of things that you don't think about doing whenever you're actually shooting a movie on Quiet Storm, we didn't even fucking think about that. We were just trying to get the movie made. Yeah, same same on the laundry day. Yeah, we have like five production photos, maybe. Right, and and most of those are from a fucking cell phone because it's just something you take on the fly. Like it just didn't strike me. The second that I learned it, though, Plaquemines, we had a fucking still photographer because it's just it's one of those things that. On the indie level, you don't think about, and it's like, oh, we don't need photos, because why are you getting photos? It's for marketing. But it's not for marketing, it's so that whenever you deliver it, you have those things. Like, whenever we delivered Plaquemines to HBO, we fucking had everything, and that was because of dealing with stuff before that. Quiet Storm, I was actually really good about getting paperwork because of shit like Big Short, where you knew, like, if you were shooting in somewhere where there's a lot of people on bikes just driving by, I better have every fucking NDA and every goddamn likeness release that I needed to get people to sign off on this shit right now. And then stuff that I wouldn't even thought of, uh, Plaquemines, there was a picture in the back of a shot that I thought it was under a blanket agreement with the prop house, but it wasn't actually that prop house. It was a different prop house. And so I had to go track them down 
like at the end of it. And it was just shit like that. Mm. But the thing is, knowing that and knowing what you're going to need to do about that, you wind up putting a lot of that in the front whenever you're doing prep and you're thinking about all these things. The thing that I see a lot of now that I, that worries me, and, it, and this was a perfect example with this show, was that there were so many things that you're like, what the fuck are you, like, you can't do this. Um, be it like changing agreements in the middle of an agreement or whatever, or tweaking thing. Like it was just, it was always mm. something. Like, I don't know if we're going to have a freaking holding today because this wasn't, or somebody changed their mind on this or some shit like that. <laughs> but to your question, no, it was not, it was not like a director kind of thing. This was an above the line kind of deal. And it wasn't even above the line because above the line was Jeremy Reiner, great dude, uh, Dee Dee Gardner, who was there for a fucking handful of days and Brad Pitt, same thing, like plan B, um, Jeremy was the main guy that was there and Jeremy was great. I actually liked him a lot, but the other person that I won't name was the fucking culprit of a lot of these things. Whereas green book, the, the person, in the same position, there was actually two of them fucking phenomenal. Actually where I'm working with one of them right now on uh, these Amazon flicks, they're wonderful. Absolutely fucking wonderful. If you went to them and said like, we need this, they understood it. Um, whereas on big short, be like, no, can't do it. And it was just like, what the fuck are you talking about? You agreed to do this already. Like, we can't say no now. Um, so that was it, that was a fucking learning experience. And one of those ones where I actually use a lot of them to this day. And I also use a lot of people that I met from there to this day on indie shows. Because going back to your thing about people not getting it, um, there was a lot of people on Big Short and other shows that you just have to know who would get independent films and not complain about the things you're saying and the other thing is that also whenever you see that starting out yeah nip it in the butt immediately because it's not going to change right like those people are going to want to be on the fucking main shows or the major gigs they should go do that because it's like i get it dude if you if you want what the fuck are we doing and like flying by the seat of your pants don't get anywhere near a fucking indie show because you don't fucking know what's going to happen day to day half the time even no matter how hard you try that's such a great point i'll give you a quick story from my first movie and i told you we, we set it up in la and we shot in huntington west virginia in the middle of february so we're talking, you know, two, everyone's 2,000 miles from home in freezing conditions, snowing all the time. It's like, this was like a $100,000 production basically back in 2002. And the guy who came in as first AD, he'd been working his way up through the AD department. He was, he got a waiver from the DGA and he had just come off of Jurassic Park 3. And hmm. we thought, cool, we'll have some leadership at the top who can really train the rest of us greenhorns. And... What ended up happening was, is that he had such massive cognitive dissonance with the, the low budget nature of the production that he kind of lost his mind. And, <laughs> um, and after eight days of shooting, he had like a complete nervous breakdown, he trashed his hotel room, <laughs> snuck out in the middle of the night, stole a rental car from our company cars, drove it to the airport, <laughs> took a golf club, beat the shit out of the car in front of the terminal, and then went in and booked a ticket back to L.A. And this was, like I said, February of 2002. So we're talking six months after 9-11. So they caught him on camera beating the shit out of his car and then abandoning the car in front of the terminal, like the green loaders for loading and unloading section of the airport. So it created like a TSA, like national security situation where they had to inspect the car for bombs. Right. And of course, they traced it back to the rental car company who traced it back to us. So of course, we got woken up the next morning with like police and 
TSA and, and Homeland Security in the lobby of the hotel, like looking to uh, interrogate the producers for suspected terrorist activity or whatever. It was just a uh, a classic case of the wrong man on the wrong show. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I will say again that a lot of people in production, especially locally, a lot of them came from being PAs and working their way up, so they get it. They're not complete pricks when it comes to like what you're talking about. Yeah. So Pl- Plaquemines was the L.E.H. Grant, the $50,000 Deep South award-winning. Mm-hmm. It was a, a, a one-time $50,000 grant through the Film Society and L.E.H. Um, to a short film that you had to submit a proposal to. I, I'm curious, when you submitted that proposal and won that grant, did the proposal contain the crew members that you wanted to use and the productions that you had met them on and worked with? And was that part of um, what sold it? Yes. It, it contained all of that. It contained a schedule. It contained uh, everything needed except for money to start shooting immediately. Honestly, we used pretty much the same crew as Quiet Storm. It was the same DP. It was the same costume designer. Um, production designer was going to be the same person, but she couldn't quite do it, so it was a different person. But basically, I just used the same people on A Quiet Storm for that with a couple of tweaks due to uh, availability. Almost everyone from A Quiet Storm we just kind of took and brought over in some capacity there. And and so, yeah, we used the same names as those. And, and some of the people, like, they would ask, well who's the water safety uh, advisor? And I'll be like, well, funny you mentioned that because it's the same guy that was on the big short, which it was. It was a guy named Steve. In the pitch that we did, they would ask questions and be like, yeah, no, we have this person standing by. So big short actually, because um, Plaquemines was also in 2015. So 2015, we did big short. And then the second that we finished that, I went and started doing Quiet Storm. Right after Quiet Storm, we were doing post with that, uh, Nayla, who was the director of Plaquemines, asked me if I was interested in applying for it because had, I had asked her to give me feedback on Quiet Storm. And so I went ahead and did the producing side of it while she did the directing side, and we submitted it. And then, yeah, whenever they asked for, like, the budget and all, I just kind of took from people that I knew from Big Short and from Quiet Storm and kind of used those. And so it was, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why this movie is... is PTSD as I actually have from this, I, it actually helped me out considerably career-wise because it taught me a ton of shit, both what to do and what not to do. It also helped me meet a ton of people who have been influential career-wise. So it, it actually did, like Hollywood South-wise, has expanded the pool both um, on major shows and independent shows exponentially. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, that's a system working at its best. That's that's how it's supposed to go. Oh, absolutely. One of my frustrations, uh, it's not a personal frustration, it's more of a ecosystem kind of frustration, a sort of uh, living set, a vicariously frustration with the city is how many one-and-done directors we have where you have a little film collective, they'll come out of Tulane or UNO or, or Dillard or what have you, they'll spend a couple years putting together a feature, they'll spend several years in posts, you know, five-year typical turnaround time for a first feature for this group of friends, and then it kind of comes and goes, and then there's no follow-up. It's, it's kind of like it breaks their spirit or something, or they expect, you know, A24 to, like, show up and scoop them off their feet and make them celebrities and stuff, and, and it's... <laughs> uh, and whereas most film schools now, they make people work 
multiple crew positions over the course of their years in the film school. So they'll, they'll direct one film, sure, or produce one film, sure, but they'll also have to work in the AD department or have to work in the camera department or they'll have to be location manager, for, et cetera, et cetera. And that way they get to try everything, but the the net experience is that you're meeting people in departments, you're getting to know what makes a good department head in, in different jobs, like, and you start to see how the puzzle gets put together and so that you have a broader perspective plus you have all those contacts that you can use to put together your next film and so hypothetically you have this momentum going you know you you worked on the big short and then you know initiated those next two projects but you also have been working for other things you know you're if you don't have the momentum in your above the line position you roll into the momentum below the line and so forth and then that way you're still meeting people you're still developing experience you're still developing contacts and especially the example of the water safety supervisor is a a great one because that's such a niche position but it's you know, it's a life or death position, literally, and you're not going to need it every production. But when you need it, who's going to be the person who has that contact? And it's the person who, you know, paid attention to that, kept up with that person, etc. And so no matter how tangential uh, anyone may be, it's just it's the whole networking, apprenticeship, you know, social dynamic of, of film productions. And that's why I, I kind of feel like the one and done phenomenon um, that I mentioned for, for directors here is a... I think that overall independent community has a has a, a bit of a stagnation where it's always slight it's always percolating a little bit, right? And then occasionally you get a little flume up like Beast of the Southern Wild, but there's no it, it's it's so it's hard to get people to rally around each other here and and I don't see like the film collectives tend to be like these little airtight bubbles that don't seem to allow permeability like crosswise it's a little frustrating um that you can't or maybe i'm naive but like back in la and new york like there was a thing where like i would go set to set to set over six months i might be on four or five different sets just helping people not getting huge you know positions or title or not moving up any particular ladder but my phone would ring and someone would be like hey we really need someone you know i ran sound on a on a kung fu movie that was shot at UCLA and stuff, you know, for like a week because for one week they didn't have a guy and I was totally green, but I was open to everything and I learned how to how to run sound and boom and mix and so forth uh, just because I was uh, happy to help and they knew I'd be happy to help, so they called me. And I, I don't get those kind of calls in New Orleans, It's uh, but I did in New York and L.A. It's kind of weird. And I think maybe people think because I, I directed Laundry Day that I, I wouldn't be open to that, but it's also something to do with the quantity of production here. There's just not enough independent films going at one time to, to have a lot of that kind of thing. And it's also, I think, we, we live in this era where the, you know, the social media has created this transparency with major film productions, there's like now everybody knows everything about how The Dark Knight was made or, or what have you. And then they're looking at their own productions and maybe there's a sense of like, I'm not worthy and they're kind of embarrassed and they, they don't want people to come on and, and see what they're doing, only their friends to see the modesty of the production, which I think is a, a big mistake because the fact is until you ask, you have no idea who's willing to help you. I mean, even on Laundry Day where I was unknown to the city as a filmmaker for the most part. Um, and I, I cold called Larry Blake and just asked him, you know, what, what do you recommend for production sound and so forth? And not only did he, was he willing to talk to me, he, you know, he turned out to be a, a, a great ongoing resource for the entire 
post-production of the thing or I could I could just pick up the phone and email or call him and this is this is a you know this is a guy who's like made every Soderbergh film and stuff like he you know he has no reason to like give me the time of day but he he just did and so I think we as a community could definitely lean on each other more and ask reach out to each other more for favors or how to advice or just like whatever instead of this sort of film collective thing that tends to keep everyone really isolated and prevents that that lateral education and I mean just talking to you I always learned so much about the inner workings of of crews and and things and I feel like I want these conversations it's one of the reasons I started this podcast is for the educational value of, of um you know slowly picking the brains of everyone I know in, in the in the film community and uh learning every single time it's without fail I always learn from this and I wish people would take the initiative and reach out um Part of the reason I put together this that list you alluded to at the top of the show, um, you know, it's got a hundred something films on it, but I made sure to try to get every major New Orleans feature done in the last uh, 15 years onto that list because those directors have either, they've either moved into like documentary film like Zach Manuel, <laughs> who shot Live Evil back in the day. But Live Evil still is, a, you know, it's a, it's a good film onto itself, and it, but it's a, it's a wonderful template for low-budget, high-concept independent filmmaking. And even though Zach's now an acclaimed documentary guy, I'm sure he would still have a lot to share and a lot of wisdom to impart from having gone through the gauntlet of an entire feature film production, um, and, and so on and so on. So even if, I don't know, it's easy to talk yourself out of things, but my advice to filmmakers out there is, like, reach out to people. You know, reach out to me, email, I'm, my emails are online and everything. Reach out to John, reach out to everybody. Anyone, you know, just look up independent, like New Orleans independent features, Google that list. Most of those filmmakers, are, their information is going to be out there somewhere and people are going to be happy to talk to you. Um, you'd be surprised. So that's my advice. What, John, do you have any advice for people? You come at the puzzle from so many angles. If you were to talk to an average 20-something, uh, you know, cinephile who wants to wants to make, you know, the next Panic in the Streets or something <laughs> for New Orleans, what would your advice be? Okay. I actually can, can use a decent example of this. So Jason did Quiet Storm. Uh, Jason Apple, like you said. I met Jason through a professor at UNO who also was one of the creators of Time Code NOLA, Aaron Russian. Uh, Aaron's a good dude that asked me if I could help out on one of Jason's shorts, a thing called Spare Change. And so showed up at Spare Change, helped out. The next thing he did was Quiet Storm. Aaron actually asked me randomly because I was doing Big Short and all about, you know, what do you think of this? Read the script. And the first thing it made me think about reading the script was how fucking expensive this was going to be. And I wrote Jason Aaron. I was like, hey, here's what I will tell you did Terminator and you have a fucking Terminator style scene here of like running through the streets with a like gun battle and you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to lock down these streets and have fucking like car chases and rounds being fired and yada 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 that's a like a hundred grand scene right off the bat that's not gonna work so Jason was one of the first people that I had ever met that actually took the advice of some random fucking kid and rewrote the script to where it's now more like you see in the actual film in the opening scene where it kind of cuts to black. That is obviously a low-budget-ass thing to do, but it's also something that allows that to get made. 
Jason will tell you a similar story of when he was trying to get that made. He sent it to a producer, I forget her name, but it was his first choice because he had gotten told by somebody, oh, you should reach out to this person. She read the script and was like, you can't do this for under 100 or under 500,000. And he's like, well, we only have like 75,000 available. Uh, and she's like, well, then you can't do it. And that was her thing was, you can't do it. Mine was, how can we do it? And I think that that is the best thing I can ever tell someone is you don't look at something on the negative side of it. You look at what you have available to you and then you go from there. So um, see what you can do and how can we do it? If you want to have a movie, it's just a matter of figuring out which way works the best. And one of the unfortunate truths is that doing it for, you know, 50 grand you will have a harder time getting it distributed because they don't have the name talent that they want to put on a poster because that's all distributors really give two shits about a lot of times is the names that they can put on a fucking poster. Um, and so that's where a lot of money comes from, or a lot of money goes to that makes things so much more expensive than they need to be is just getting that name talent. Again, though, if you want to do it, then you just go do it, especially if it's your first or second feature. There's a same thing, similarly, a horror film that we're doing that it has a very solid cast. It has a lot of moving parts, and it can be done for about $400,000 realistically and safely. That's not an unheard of amount, but it's easier to get $6 million than it is to get $400,000 a lot of times. And that's another thing that I think a lot of a lot of new people don't realize is you're not approaching studios right off the bat. You're approaching friends, family, coworkers, shit like that. So those people need to understand if you're doing something smaller, that it's going to be a smaller level, like uh, going to an investor. And the thing is I refuse to lie, which is probably a shortcoming of mine and tell them that they're going to make millions of bucks on it. And I was honest, like the best, the, the, the minimal you get out of this is a finished movie. The best you'll get out of it might be a lot more, but I can't guarantee you're going to fucking make your money back because it's just the truth. You're more than likely going to lose that money, but you'll have a fucking film that could be something that people watch and love and whatever, or it could be a complete failure. And not lying to people, I think, is also one of the best things I can tell people. It might also be the worst advice I can give someone. Um, just be honest when you're trying to make that fucking feature. Like, if you have 10000 bucks and you can make something for 10000 go make the goddamn thing. If it's something that you need 100000 for, try to piece it together, figure out if you can make it for cheaper or if you can get people to give you a bit and start doing it. But no matter what you do, don't act like you're making a fucking brilliant movie that is going to be the next fucking Blair Witch and exponentially increase its budget. You're not going to be. It's a fucking low percentage. Instead of looking at the ones that have succeeded that way, you have to look at all the other ones that have not. And most of them, the truth is, your first time is going to be like, you know, a hundred grand or less, and it's going to make fucking 10 grand if you're lucky at fucking local showings or whatever. And so you just have to take that into account when you're making stuff. You're not making the most brilliant fucking film in the history of time. And I think that that mentality is why a lot of the collectors you talk about filter out because they think they're making brilliant fucking art. They think that they're going to make a ton of money once they finish it. And it just doesn't happen. And it takes, I think you said five years, most features from prep, uh, from from just development, I should say, until getting distribution. Yeah, five years is probably a, a realistic example 
because you're going to have to find money. You're going to have to get all that done. And taking five years to do something and then seeing it, at best, most of the time, get on fucking streaming for free probably does take a lot of your confidence out and probably does just completely deflate you. The thing is, yeah, it does. And then you go do it again. I mean, fucking Peter Jackson did Bad Taste for four years of shooting on weekends with his friends. Yeah. And it, this is in a different time where film festivals were actually meant to give people who weren't big names a fucking platform and it wasn't just trying to sell tickets so he got into con with that goddamn thing nowadays it's much much more difficult to get into fucking film festivals because they care about selling tickets more than likely you're going to get rejected by tons of film festivals as well which is another reason that i think a lot of people give up because they keep getting that rejection thing and they spend money on the festival entries and you get nothing well i I think that's a great example because you're you're talking about the difference between the legend and the reality like peter jackson is you know one of the most acclaimed filmmakers of all time at this point and the fact that his you know micro budget horror movie got into con is a total anomaly i mean we all hear these legendary stories but it it without hearing about the hardships the failures the rejections that came along with all of these success stories um Everyone has a skewed set of expectations, and those expectations are why it's so heartbreaking to hit the modern festival circuit and and not understand, you know, how everything has changed. I think if you can calibrate your your expectations more modestly and think of it as work leading to more work, you're, as opposed to work leading to the red carpet and fame and glory, then you're in a much better place to savor the successes and develop a body of work than just crashing on heartbreak because you expect to be discovered as the next J.C. Chandor or what have you. Anyway, so yeah, um, I think that's great advice. And uh, we got to wrap up. But well, let me give you I, uh... one last quick thing about that. Just as far as the festival start you're talking about, another thing that is very important, we just did a horror short that we got rejected left and right on. The way station? Way station, yes, sir. Left and right, everything, just rejecting us. Uh, I showed it to the same person he had mentioned before, Paul Udo, who's a local dude. He gave us a suggestion for a pickup shot that we went and did. And just putting that in and tweaking this, the scene that preceded or, or the shot that preceded it has now gotten us into every festival just about that we've applied to. Mm-hmm. So it's one fucking shot is the difference between it. So that's the other thing is that look at what you're doing and if it's not great, show it to more people. Don't just hide in your fucking collectives and like think that you have some great thing and if things aren't going right, there might be something that somebody watches and gives you one piece of advice that changes everything for you. And like, I can't stress that enough. Like get out of your comfort zone and go show people that might tell you what you don't want to hear but that is that will be the difference a lot of times between getting into the festivals you want and just completely wasting your money. Awesome. No, that's dead on. Especially if you have a short film, there's no excuse not to share it. Absolutely. I'm not talking about throwing it up on YouTube. I'm talking about slipping it to professionals in your network who can give you honest feedback, especially in the festival circuit when your stuff like premiere status still helps. Right. Got to be bold and open to feedback. Uh, especially in the in the modern era where everyone's got a non-linear editor in their computer and you can <laughs> tweak until the day you send it to the festival. Um, cool, John, this has been amazing. Everything I hoped for and more. If anybody needs anything, but like you had mentioned before, 
feel free to reach out because uh, especially right now, this is a great time to be doing some pre-pro and just doing things that for, for movies you might have put on the back burner or whatnot. And there's a lot of things you're going to overlook that a lot of people are out there as references for that could absolutely help you out and give you advice. Yeah, take advantage. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a weird thing to say the pandemic is a blessing, but it's, I guess, what they call a blessing in disguise. You know, find that silver lining. Get, get, get to work in your screenplays, get to work in your, your planning, your pre-pro. Try to get it as far down the line conceptually as you can so that when you can get these groups together and hit the ground running. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. Uh, this is fantastic. This is this is the uh, longest episode I've, I've ever recorded, and it's all gold, baby. <laughs> yeah, I warned you about that. I told you I fucking talk too much. <laughs> Subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends, etc.